St. Louis Public Radio's The Gateway gives you the day's news first thing every weekday morning. From the ever-evolving relationship between St. Louis City and County to developments in the Missouri and Illinois state capitals and reports from our correspondents in Rolla and the Metro East. We put it all in a roughly 10-minute package with clarity and context. Download The Gateway wherever you get podcasts. This episode was recorded on April 13th, 2020. The 2020 general election began last week like no other in American history. The Democrats may have settled on a nominee, but there was no event where the runner-up took to the podium, surrounded by family members, and conceded. Or a large rally where the presumptive nominee celebrated their victory. Instead, Bernie Sanders ended his campaign for the White House by recording a video message to supporters from his home in Burlington, Vermont. And Joe Biden began the next phase of his campaign from Wilmington, Delaware, by writing a post on Medium. President Donald Trump responded to the news on Twitter, holed up at the White House. Those are the media on which the campaign for the presidency will likely play out, at least for the coming weeks and months, as President Trump and Vice President Biden prepare to issue in-person events for virtual ones due to the coronavirus. How exactly do you manage a campaign during a pandemic? To answer that question, I got in touch with Aaron Perini, I am Principal Deputy Communications Director for Donald J. Trump for President. And Andrew Bates with the Biden campaign. So I'm the Director of Rapid Response. And while there may not be much these two campaign aides agree on, they both acknowledge that they are seeking the White House in uncharted waters. We are definitely dealing with stuff that that no other campaign, no other president has had to deal with before. I think it's important to remember that this is an unprecedented situation. I'm Gabe Fleischer, and from St. Louis Public Radio and me, this is Wake Up to Politics. It's hard to believe, but just a little more than a month ago, as the Missouri primary approached, I attended two big campaign events here in St. Louis, one for Joe Biden and one for Bernie Sanders. There were already several hundred cases of coronavirus that had been confirmed in the United States. Yet, at each event, I was packed in with more than 1,500 people. The Bernie Sanders event would turn out to be the last big rally of his campaign, as he would soon return to Burlington and hunker down for the remainder of his presidential bid. Within a few days, Joe Biden would turn entirely to virtual campaigning as well. Hi, Mr. Vice President. Hey, Gabe. Um, So obviously you spent a lot of time today talking about young voters. Yes. Consistently throughout the primaries, you've trailed Bernie Sanders among those voters. So I'm wondering, as you turn to the general election, what concrete steps? Just a few weeks later, I ended up on a Zoom call with the former vice president, his first ever event on the teleconferencing platform that has become a part of many of our daily lives. Making sure that your generation, I'm assuming you're somewhere between 18 and 30. uh, 18. 18. (laughs) That your generation doesn't end up behind the eight ball because you get hurt by this so badly you can't ever, when you get out of school, be able to move. And so, for example, At least on Biden's end, the transition to this new style of campaigning was awkward at best, with more than a few glitches that exposed the 77-year-old's discomfort with asking for votes online. But Biden aide Andrew Bates said, all things considered, the campaign adapted swiftly. It's, I think, on balance pretty quickly uh, that we were able to build uh, a studio in his house uh, and, and completely revamp 
our campaign schedule uh, and, and change it so that the emphasis was put much more heavily on, on digital outreach um, because that's obviously been at the heart of everything that we do from the outset. There is a big disconnect between political Twitter and, and a lot of what's on, on cable mm-hmm. and what people are really going through and thinking about in their daily lives. And I think, you know, we, we had a, a couple of days where we were adjusting, where we were constructing you know, a studio for him to have so that he could do these kinds of virtual town halls and talk with people more directly and, and do more interviews. We, we've obviously done uh, a high number of television interviews with it since. Um, so I, I think that, that that's something that got a little exaggerated. But I think that also the fact that just about everything we're doing uh, pertains directly to the outbreak and how he thinks it should have been handled. The Trump campaign, on the other hand, says they barely needed a transition period at all. Here's the thing. We already had these resources built out on the campaign, right? Brad Perscale is our campaign manager, and he was the data operation in the 16 campaign. So this was a campaign that was built for this, right? We have the infrastructure. We have the digital presence. We know how to reach our supporters and our voters and bring new people into the fold all online. And then we all started working remotely with the full-time switch over to our fully digital campaign happening on March 13th. And we were able to make that full operational switch for all of our field work and all of our offices across the country um, within 24 hours. So it was a really seamless process for the campaign. By now, both campaigns have settled into a routine of offering virtual events that supporters can log on to. For the Trump campaign, with their candidate mostly occupied with running the pandemic response, that means nightly events with top surrogates. So we are currently on a seven day a week online broadcast schedule uh, from the campaign. So we have had a Women for Trump event where Laura Trump has come on and talked about the grassroots effort. We launched our Catholics for Trump coalition with a digital broadcast. We are having, we just had a Black Voices for Trump event. We have a War Room Weekly where we go out and we compare and contrast Joe Biden's record with President Trump's record. We're using these as an opportunity to continue the conversation, to continue to engage supporters in new and creative ways. And we've seen with all of our broadcasts, we are hitting over a million viewers every time we put an online broadcast on. For Biden's team, it has meant a series of town halls with the candidate and different constituencies as he seeks to broaden his base now that the Democratic primary fight has come to a close. The press conference I asked a question in, for example, was aimed at young voters, a constituency he overwhelmingly lost to Bernie Sanders in the primary. In medium posts and various live-streamed events this week, Biden has unveiled new policies focused on winning over some of Sanders' supporters. But he is now faced with the difficult task of uniting the party, even while its warring factions can't meet face-to-face and hash out their differences. I think one of the most exciting things we've done, and you will see this happen more and more, is virtual town halls with different kinds of communities. Uh, we've done those uh, with people in upcoming primary states. <clears throat> we've also done them with young Americans uh, to talk about specific issues that uniquely apply uh, to people who are under 25, um, where he talked about college tuition, uh, for example, and how uh, he has embraced um, a policy very aligned with Senator Sanders. Uh, that would uh, would provide for tuition, public colleges and universities uh, for those who make up to $125,000 a year. Uh, we also did uh, a virtual roundtable uh, with people who are on the front lines of the coronavirus pandemic, uh, medical professionals, people who are 
are, are putting their own safety on the line uh, to save lives and, and to help us beat this back. Uh, and I think that's that's something that really showcases some of his best qualities. Coronavirus has not only moved the candidates online, but it has pushed their entire campaign operations there as well, forcing both sides to reach voters in new ways. We had a national day of action, and leading up to that, we had a national week of training, which was all online, all digital training of volunteers and supporters of President Trump, culminating in the 21st, where we would get out and interact with supporters. On that day, fully online, fully remote, the campaign reached um, almost 1.5 million voters by phone, made 1.5 million phone calls in that single day. For context, uh, we were not at that level of phone calls in the midterm cycle until September of 2018. So we are well ahead of the curve. No one knows how long this pandemic will last, but it could be responsible for a large-scale transformation of how campaigning is conducted, or at least speeding along a pivot to digital that has already been underway for several cycles. More and more uh, people get their information online. Uh, you know, if, if they're interested in a candidate or their views, they're, they're going to Google them. They're going to look at their feed and, and see what, what people in their community uh, are sharing. Um, it's something you know, David Plouffe often talks about how uh, a responsibility for folks who want to help uh, ensure that we defeat Donald Trump is that just share as, as much uh, real information you know, from reputable sources as you can to your own networks. Um, and <clears throat> right now, um, when everybody you know is at home, you know we hope being safe and listening to to local officials and, and to medical experts and taking that guidance, they're going to spend a lot more time you know consuming TV or or on the internet. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think that that's something that helps us make sure that we're oriented enough towards that, and and it helps us uh, be innovative uh, because this is a stage where we can explore. Um, different ways that we might um, we might try new approaches to reach people. You know, like like we we hadn't really done many of these digital town halls before, but like there there are probably some advantages to those um, that mean you might consider using them even you know when uh, you know we we hope as soon as possible uh, we have beaten coronavirus and 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 it's safe to go about normal life again. For the campaign staffers themselves, it has also forced a rethinking of how the higher echelon of presidential campaigns stay in touch and strategize. Instead of being cloistered together in sleek headquarters, both campaigns are faced with running nationwide operations from their respective homes and doing it over video calls, just like how many of us are working or attending classes. This is true for Team Trump. I try to get each of my staff on the phone solo every day to just do a check-in, just make sure everybody's okay, what's going on. Because, you know, isolation is tough for some people who don't necessarily have anybody else. But on the campaign, we're a team, we're a family. We're all in this together. And so we're making sure that everybody's talking all the time to each other. And, and at this point, we feel good about where we stand and, and, and the work we're doing on behalf of President Trump. And the Biden campaign is taking a similar approach. I, I think folks are also looking out for each other, you know, personally during, during this. Uh, you know, like I said, we're a lot of us are in Philly in our apartments and we'll kind of check in like, Hey, like you have what you need. Mm -hmm. uh, like a good, good friend of mine uh, lives about a block and a half from here, you know? Um, and, and uh, we were making sure uh, the other day that uh, he had something that we had here that he, he didn't quite have enough of. Um, <clears throat> and so I think like, like a lot of communities uh, around the country right now, whether it's you know, students or, or, or whether it's neighbors or people who work together, we're all, Staying in touch, uh, you know, whether it's Zoom like this or 
or, or just making sure that we give each other you know, more phone calls and you know, kind of talk about how you're how you're feeling about stuff. You know, you, you want to make sure that you're there for each other. But I think that at the same time, um, it hasn't really hindered our ability to be you know, effective and aware and in close touch and coordinating uh, around campaign operations. Andrew and I were talking on the day Bernie Sanders ended his campaign and Joe Biden became the presumptive Democratic nominee. Instead of popping champagne corks at HQ, here's how Biden's staff was celebrating. One way that we, we try to just you know keep camaraderie going and, and see each other's faces is uh, we, we have a, a 4 p.m. dance party uh, that we, we, we now do uh, through Google Hangouts. Um, and I'm actually missing it right now just to do this because it was at four. Folks are, I think, a little more amped up about today. In some ways, the two men running for president this year are uniquely ill-suited for virtual campaigning. For one thing, they're both in their 70s. Neither are known for their tech savvy. And, in different forms, they both feed off of the campaign trail in ways that will be hard to replicate while stuck at home. For as long as he has been in public life, Joe Biden has been known for his very personal style of campaigning, building connections through close, in-your-face contact, the exact type of contact that he's been forced to give up just as he's gotten closer than ever to the prize he's been chasing for more than 30 years. This past week, the Biden campaign debuted a virtual rope line to try to mimic the type of voter contact of in-person events. But there's still no substitute for the real thing. I think something that he misses the most about having physical events on the campaign trail is that he thinks it's very important uh, for people that are, are running to represent folks to show that they really care about daily lives. and. I think one of the most meaningful ways that he does that is through one-on-one -on -one interactions. Uh, and I think we've all seen that happen in rope lines, for example, or if he stops at a diner, or if he's taking a selfie with somebody, he does that very often. Mm -hmm. um, but clearly we can't do that now. Um, and <clears throat> one big focus uh, as we expand into more virtual campaigning uh, and invest more into digital is replicating that uh, with technology. Donald Trump, on the other hand, has made his huge, rollicking campaign rallies the staple of his political life. Rallies have been his signature ever since launching his 2016 campaign, and Trump has continued them since entering the Oval Office. Now, suddenly, they've come to a stop, fundamentally altering Trump's style of campaigning. Some commentators have suggested that the president's daily coronavirus briefings, some of which have stretched over two hours and, and included some of the same themes as those events, have taken the place of the rallies. Aaron Perini didn't quite go that far, but when I asked if it was a challenge for President Trump to carry on without the rallies, she brought up the daily briefings herself. Later, though, she clarified that they obviously aren't the same, although they might give him a similar boost. They are very different things and they serve different purposes, but we've seen on the campaign uh, time and again is that when President Trump directly addresses the American people, that that is always more well-received than when political pundits or the news media layer, his, his, layer him with their own voice and their own analysis. So when the American people are hearing directly from the president and in this time of crisis, in this time of pandemic, they are responding positively. And that's why you see polling numbers. And we've put out some of our internal polling numbers to show that people are responding positively 
to President Trump's leadership. I don't think that the, the two can be equated because they serve very different purposes, but the American people remain the same in the fact that when President Trump talks directly to them without the political analysis over top, that they respond positively. How long will this period of virtual campaigning last? Obviously, no one knows. But both parties are preparing for the possibility of significantly slimmed down conventions, and the Democrats already pushed theirs back from July to August. And then, of course, there is the question of how the coronavirus will impact not just the logistics of the campaigning, but the debate at hand during the campaign itself. By November, will COVID-19 and its wide-reaching economic ramifications remain the top issue of American voters? Will the 2020 election hinge on how the pandemic is handled? The two campaigns offered notably different answers. Here's Aaron again from the Trump campaign. It's really hard at this point to say what will be on people's minds in November. It's we're kind of we're a little bit further removed from that from when people would lock in on those decisions. But at the end of the day, the American people want to know that this country is safer and this country is stronger because of the decisions made. If they look at what President Trump is doing, we feel confident that they will be able to say, yes, he is the right man for four more years. And here's Andrew from the Biden campaign when I asked him the same question. It's absolutely going to be one of the biggest issues um, because um, obviously it's dominant now. Everybody's life has been upended by it. Uh, and we, we have more coronavirus cases in our country than any other in the world. We're going to see more pain. We're going to see more people come down with the virus and we're going to see more job losses and more economic contraction uh, before we see the opposite of those things. And so how, uh, how these leaders uh, would address it is going to be extremely important to voters. But it's clear, even for different reasons, both campaigns will breathe a sigh of relief when this pandemic is behind them. I cannot imagine what the first rally back will feel like. It'll be like Christmas Day. Everybody's going to be so enthusiastic and excited. My guests today were Aaron Parini, the Principal Deputy Communications Director for the Trump campaign, and Andrew Bates, the Rapid Response Director for the Biden campaign. You can find them on Twitter at Aaron M. Parini and at Andrew Bates NC. And you can follow me at Wake Up to Politics or subscribe to my newsletter at wakeuptopolitics.com. The Wake Up to Politics podcast is produced by me, Gabe Fleischer, and Tim Lloyd, the senior producer for on-demand and content partnerships at St. Louis Public Radio. If you have any ideas for what we should cover on the podcast next, feel free to reach out to me at gabe at wakeuptopolitics.com.